Thanks again for downloading another episode of GI Pearls, Gastroenterology and Hepatology Podcast, where I review interesting articles that hopefully can help you in your daily clinical practice, or maybe even give you ideas for research. Who knows? For regular listeners, I want to thank those of you who left reviews on iTunes. This is episode 60 of the podcast, by the way. All right, without further delay, let's crack open those journals, shall we? We start today with a meta-analysis. Dyspepsia is common, and something like 20% of people experience it at some point. Most folks do okay with lifestyle modifications, PPIs, but some require endoscopy. But how often do you actually find something that you can do something about when you do do endoscopy? This next paper published in CGH has a good title. What is the prevalence of clinically significant endoscopic findings in subjects with dyspepsia? Updated systematic review and meta-analysis. Let's get into it. So here's a look at published studies on dyspepsia to see if there's an EGD findings that were reported. That way we have new information on the prevalence of endoscopic findings in patients with dyspepsia. Number one finding, not surprising, was erosive esophagitis. 11% of patients had this, followed by peptic ulcers, 4.4%. And in the vast majority of EGDs, meaning 85%, those were completely normal. Most importantly, there was little, if any, cancer. Less than 0.4% pooled. Also interesting that peptic ulcer disease was the sole pathologic finding more common in patients with dyspepsia than those without dyspepsia. So the takeaway here is that it is much more likely that EGD will be normal than not. An initial approach to managing dyspepsia in patients with no alarm symptoms should be non-invasive. None of this is surprising to endoscopists who commonly see patients for their first presentation of GERD. Some of them haven't even been tried on PPIs or had an H. pylori test. So we do do a gazillion upper endoscopies every year. We sort of follow a loose set of rules. Make sure you look everywhere, wash out all the bubbles, suck up all the puddles. Spend some time examining the GE junction for evidence of Barrett. Spend some time looking in the stomach for any suspicious areas. Look as far as you can into the duodenum, biopsy whatever you need to biopsy, take some pictures and get out. Some societies try to codify these rules of thumb into something more of a guideline or a society rule. There are detailed statements about how many pictures you should take, which terminology you should use, how to biopsy and when to biopsy, and as usual it's a mixed bag of data-driven advice versus expert opinion. This next paper published in GIE is titled Quality of Upper GI Endoscopy, a Prospective Cohort Study on Impact of Endoscopic Education. And here the authors set out to see if educating endoscopists on the guidelines helps with adherence to the guidelines, and also to see if there's any effect on any clinical outcomes. Endoscopists participated in a one-hour education session about performance measures, and then did a pre- and post-analysis over two years to see this, if this intervention had any effect. By the way, they used the European guidelines for upper GI endoscopy. And of course, it did have an effect. But this is not why I mentioned this paper on this podcast. There is much more important reason. As long-time listeners know, I am a stickler for evidence. And when you set up performance measures, you better have some good data behind you to make sure you're actually not wasting your time. Say if you're a football coach and you tell me that the quarterbacks on the team need to be good at, say, I don't know, chess, you better have good explanation as to why that is. 
I don't want my quarterbacks wasting their time otherwise playing chess instead of practicing throwing a perfect spiral or whatever they do in football. I really am not an expert on football, but I do know that playing chess is probably low on the list of priorities for them. So now that I gave you a complex analogy on a sport that I know nothing about, going back to the mixed bag of guideline recommendations, there are minimum withdrawal times, minimum number of pictures you need to take, 10 by the way, where the things look normal or not, you got to take these 10 pictures. So in this study, there was a statistically significant increase in proportion of procedures that were compliant with the ESGE recommendations for upper GI endoscopy quality. The number of photos went up. The time of inspection went up. Everything was looking up. There was even a statement that there was an impact on the rate of detection of clinically significant pathology. Meaning, this is really what we are after, right? Is this better for patients? All these pictures, all this time you spend looking is it? The authors think that there is. Let's take a closer look at this claim. One would hope that you look at photo documenting things better. You would be detecting more Barrett's, more metaplasia, more esophageal dysplasia, more ulcers, other stuff we care about. But I'm sorry to disappoint you. None of these things were changed. There was no difference in any of that. The only statistically significant difference was found in the rate of detection of H. pylori, the one metric where you don't really need endoscopy for most of the time. And most society guidelines not even recommend routine biopsies to look for this. I'll get an endoscopy if that's what you're looking for in the first place. So what do I think about this paper? I think it's excellent. I think adherence to guidelines and clinical outcomes is an excellent area for research. Kind of backwards since some of the guidelines statements are based on dubious evidence. But these type of studies could still give us clues if we're doing the right thing for our patients. One way of interpreting this paper would be that more pictures and prolonged inspection time leads to more detection of H. pylori. Isn't that strange? I say that taking more pictures and specific time that would equate to a quality exam is more in the realm of somebody's imagination for the time being, rather than quality. And no amount of pictures would compensate for incompetence and recognizing pathology, which is really what matters. And what I mean by that is that I probably trust somebody who takes 50 pictures and spends 20 minutes looking versus somebody who takes a minute and doesn't look everywhere. But obviously there's plenty of room in the middle and there's people who are very fast, take almost no pictures, but are better at detecting and recognizing pathology than those who take 50 pictures of normal. I'm curious, how many pictures do you take during your upper endoscopy? I probably still take around 10 pictures, funny enough, even though I'm not sure if that's the right thing to do. Going along the theme of quality indicators, we have many colonoscopy quality indicators. Your adenoma detection rate, your CECO intubation rate, polyp detection rate are the big ones. No one likes colon cancer, so if you're setting off to do a colonoscopy, you better do a good job at it. This next study is a meta-analysis review published in CGH titled Association Between Endoscopist Specialty and Colonoscopy. They looked at studies over the past 20 years comparing quality indicators between GI docs surgeons, including general surgeons and colorectal surgeons. Not the first study to show that we gastroenterologists do a better job than other subspecialties, but how much better are we? Let's start with adenoma detection rate. Odds ratio for EDR was lower for surgeons at 0.81. And when looking at non-screening populations, things were even worse. Odds ratio dropped to 0.66. What about sequel intubation rate? Surgeon colonoscopies compared to GI colonoscopies, the odds ratio was 0.76 and dropped further to 0.69 when looking at general surgeons alone. The odds of post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer were also higher for surgeons. 
and they had a perforation rate three times higher compared to GI docs. That's not good. So what are the authors driving at in the conclusions? They're driving at the point that gastroenterologists do a better job at it by design, but what can we do about it? In many communities, there are no gastroenterologists around, and your local general surgeon is the only game in town. And it's definitely better than nothing. Anything we can do about this to improve things? A very interesting editorial that comes with a paper by Rajesh Keswani, who is no stranger to quality endoscopy. Basically, he says that anyone can be trained to do endoscopy. There's nothing magical about gastroenterologists. And I totally agree with this. So how do we get surgeons to be good endoscopists? Well, by doing endoscopy. The editorial recommends that all physicians intending to perform colonoscopy should receive adequate procedural volume, which is likely closer to 400 procedures during the training period. 400 colonoscopies for a surgeon? I think that's a bit of a hard ask. Editorial does mention that many gastroenterology programs don't even meet that. And another suggestion, which I think is best, is to have periodic assessment to see how good you are. Maybe another GI doc from somewhere else comes and watches you do endoscopy, give you tips. How cool would that be? Much better than taking an expensive exam every 10 years. Much more useful too. All right, stepping away from endoscopy for a moment and looking at IBD, what do you tell your patients with Crohn's disease about rates of successful treatments with biologics before you commit a patient to it? Also, where the heck do you get this data? Well, you can always rely on brochures from the drug rep. And some of those claim remission rates, or at least what they call lasting results in over 50% of patients taking the drugs. Reality is very different, and every doc who ever prescribed biologics knows this, but we do need some hard data. So here are some hard data. The title of this short letter published in CGH is Net Remission Rates with Biologic Treatments in Crohn's Disease, a reappraisal of the clinical trial data. What they did here is propose that reporting of net remission rates be anchored to intention-to-treat analysis, looking at so-called net remission rates in clinical trials as actual percentage of patients enrolled during induction who are in remission at the end of maintenance. So which trials they looked at? All of Humira trials, Remicade trials, Stellara, and Intivia trials, meaning Gemini, Unit 2, Charm, Accent 1. These are the randomized trials we have. Of course, subdivided into TNF antagonists, naive versus not. For Humira, it was 28.7%. For Remicade and Fliximab, it was 16.7%. For Vedalizumab, it was 18.7%. And for Ustekinumab, it was 34.8%. Point being, at most, you expect about a third of your patients to respond long-term and be in clinical remission long-term. Very bad. Or maybe very good, depending on which way you look at it, because before we had nothing. Second exposure after failing anti-TNF, the rates were even lower, 17%, 6%, and 14%, respectively. I guess newer drugs are coming, and we can play around with the ones I mentioned already, but it's important to keep these numbers in mind and share with your patients. That is all I have for you today. Let's see what I've talked about. In the first paper, I told you about clinical findings on endoscopy done for dyspepsia, mostly erosive esophagitis and a few ulcers, with 85% of EGDs being normal. Then I told you about a paper where an attempt to make endoscopists better at following guidelines for upper endoscopy quality led to more H. pylori being found. The next paper spoke about how GI docs are best at endoscopy compared to other specialties, And last, I reviewed the data from a paper on net remission rates for biologics, being at most around 30% or so. 
Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls. This was episode 6-0 of the podcast. If you need to reach me or recommend a paper, send me an email to info at gipearls.com. Don't forget to write a review on iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues about GI Pearls. Ta-ta for now.